Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Real GM Radio. I am Daniel Rue, your host, and so happy to have you with us for this episode. My guest is Caitlin Cooper of Indie Cornrows, phenomenal writer, and this podcast is very in-depth, appropriately, on the Indiana Pacers. Tyrese Halliburton's fit, how the team has looked since their eventful trade deadline, balancing or choosing between a rebuild and a reload, the future, and a whole bunch of other fun stuff in there, including, uh, we talked about Jalen Smith's contract situation, and a lot of great stuff here runs a little bit less than an hour i hope you really enjoy it thank you so much for coming on hey thanks for having me again get to talk about a whole nother version of the pacers today exactly and that and that's really where i wanted to start is the adjustment at least for the interim to more of a developmental model let's call it that with the sabonis for halliburton trade how stark has the transition been in your eyes as somebody who watches the team super closely um i I think it's somewhere up the middle. I mean, right away in the first four games before the All-Star break when Tyrese debuted, the number one thing that I noticed as a change was how often, especially after made baskets, he would, you know, be clapping at guys like, let's get the ball in quickly. And he wanted to catch and immediately head downhill the other way. And their transition frequency, I'd written about this over the break, had really upticked over those four particular games um, to an area where when you look back at Rick Carlisle's teams in Dallas, that really wasn't a feature. I mean, especially over the last six seasons, they've ranked somewhere, you know, per cleaning the glass down in about the bottom five of the league and transition frequency and wondering how some of that push and pull would go because early in the season, when, you know, it was still Karis LeVert and Malcolm Brogdon and Miles and Sabonis, you would see some back and forth in games. I think I might have mentioned this the last time I was on the pod. They were on a road trip where they had three straight losses against Detroit and New York and Charlotte. And you would see late in games when opponents would start ticking up the ball pressure that they would really go to more play calling and wanted to get into stuff where it felt like, you know, you don't really want to get in a half court setting here. You might want to push it a little bit more. And Tyrese gave them an option to do that. And now since the All-Star break has come and they've played more games, you've seen that it's kind of fallen back down again, where now I think it's at 13.2 is their percentage of transition plays, which is about 26th in the league. And they were at 13.3 beforehand. But I still think that is something that Tyrese offers that was a dynamic that wasn't really there, even though it started to slip back down. But I would say that's the number one difference. Then also just I would say the credible spacing that like even just I I just wrote an entire article just about Tyrese running double drags. And the main difference you could see there is 
you know, if, if you have Buddy Heald as the first screener and, and Jalen Smith or Isaiah Jackson as the second screener, Chris Duarte in the weak side corner, just how much more that tagger, those two taggers have tension to be out further behind the arc than what was the case when you're running, you know, these double big lineups where, you know, Turner's shooting around 33% from three. A lot of times, you know, people are a little bit more willing to leave him open and send two people to Sabonis and the difference between, you know, Isaiah Jackson getting a wide open lob dunk versus, you know, Sabonis having multiple people attracted to him and them not having shooters that they could really spray out to. So I think right away, those are the two main differences in addition to just being a much younger team that's still learning how to play and how to play with each other. That spacing point is so important. And I like to think of it as just changing the margin for error where you, you know, like you brought up the passing and so you can get it. It's an easier angle because there isn't a second person that you're trying to navigate, or at least that help defender is closer in the Sabonis case. And and I think that you can make easier passing angles. You can make easier passing decisions for some of these young creators. And a part of what Rick Carlisle, Kevin Pritchard, and this entire organization need to do over the course of time, and I think this is in some ways the most interesting question facing the Pacers right now, and it could even get more interesting after the draft, just depending on how everything shakes out, is what is the intended flow of the offense? Are you Who is the lead initiator? Who complements that? And does that shift over time? Because part of what made Tyrese Halliburton so intriguing as a draft prospect, he was somebody who watched a fair amount of at Iowa State, is the idea that he could run the show sometimes, but also could play off-ball. And I actually like the off-ball stuff in many ways for him better than the on-ball. And that means, though, that there's a lot to evaluate, and those evaluations are not static. It's going to change. These are young players, Duarte, Halliburton in particular, who are going to grow and progress. But then there's also, you know, Malcolm Brogdon there as well, and theoretically they could get somebody with a draft pick or through another signing. And so figuring out what you want to do, what these players can do, and is going to be such a foundational evaluation for this franchise. Yeah, for sure. I mean, whenever they completed the trade for Tyrese Halliburton and Kevin Pritchard addressed the media, I mean, he was referred and and Rick Carlisle hasn't used these direct words, but has implicated it, you know, that they see Tyrese as their franchise point guard that they can have under control for a long time. So I think that that's generally the person that they see. But then when Malcolm Brogdon got cleared from the Achilles injury, they also kind of shifted that a little bit and indicated, you know, now we can have two point guards on the floor. And when you watch them play, it's been a little bit back and forth because Malcolm initially returned on a minutes restriction. Right. Once that was cleared, he had a few games where he was logging more time of possession than Tyrese. Now it's kind of what you're saying. It's a little bit more of an even split because they are guys who can both run offense and play off ball because of what their respective shooting abilities are and what Brogdon can do in particular as a second side driver. Um, despite what they are similar in, they are different in that, you know, Brogdon because of what his body type is, is a lot better at getting, you know, shoulder to chest advantage. His drives have been, you know, kind of otherworldly over these last four or five games where he's upwards of 20 plus drives per game. Um, been in the top four amongst drive, um, getting free throws out of those drives. And Tyrese, you know, isn't really quite there yet. He really relies on his floater and the skip pass, lob pass combination that he has, where there are spots where you want him to get a few dribbles deeper coming off of a ball screen. So they have some optionality there. I mean, I know it's been a source of, a source of frustration for fans at times late in the fourth quarters where it kind of feels like either Tyrese is being passive or he's being moved off the offense where Brogdon has been running more of it. And I am 
understanding of that in certain games. I mean, when they were up in Detroit, Detroit was switching Isaiah Stewart out and it was marginalizing Tyrese to a bit because it was their offense was very much one and done, set one screen. Isaiah Stewart's now on Malcolm Brogdon and he's kind of, you know, like a bird flying into a glass window over <laughs> they, they weren't getting they weren't getting to the next action. But then there's other games like right here before they had three days off, they played the Cavs. And you can kind of see that with Tyrese, he's more somebody that when he gets a switch in isolation, he wants to pull that big out to see, create space for a three-pointer. And when you're up against somebody like Evan Mobley or Jaron Jackson Jr., he doesn't so much want to interact in those situations. So he gets back off the ball and he isn't you know, going to be able to drive and attack that person to the rim quite yet. I think he needs to build out his body. But I mean, yeah, if it's going to be a three-guard lineup, I think what their intended vision is, is that Tyrese will be more of the lead ball handler. But I think, you know, even before Luca, if you looked at Rick Carlisle, I think he kind of prefers being able to play team ball from the guard positions and being able to run, you know, these boomerang actions where you can shift the defense to one side of the floor, throw it to another guard who can still run offense and get into things. So I think that the fit between the two of them is there. I know that they've been outscored in the minutes when they've been on the floor together so far. But I mean, the Pacers are also losing games and that's mostly against starters. So you have to take that into consideration. But um for me, it's just more so a question when they move into the offseason of how they see Brogdon's timeline fitting up with the rest of this team and whether they want to continue to take on the injury risk, given how many games he's missed since he's been a pacer in each of his first three seasons here. Right. The other huge complication when evaluating a player like Brogdon, who you could very well be happy to keep around, but that you're open to thinking about something that could be one way that Kevin Pritchard handles this is... What are the offers that are available? And Brogdon and the Pacers could benefit from a pretty stagnant market, meaning that there there aren't many free agent point guards. That I mean, if, if a team likes Brogdon better than, let's say, Jalen Brunson, that type of player, then you can get him. You know, that, that could be a possibility, assuming the Pacers want to move him. And will that lead to a sufficient asset return? It's hard to know right now. That depends on a lot of factors that are outside of it. And also... There are. It is easier logistically. There are only four to six teams that I would expect to you to be to function with cap space. There are others that could have it, but you don't really want to do that. It, it a lot of times people say, "Oh, you could do a sign and trade," and that's true. You can. However, sign and trades are more logistically difficult for a bunch of different reasons than actually trading for a player who's already under contract. So. Malcolm Brogdon is a known commodity. Teams are not evaluating him in the same way. There, there are going to be more. There's going to be more in line thinking with him. But the front office is going to have to reconcile. You know, like what is he worth to us, and what is he worth not to us, and how much do we want to evaluate all these players? And another possibility is, especially if the surrounding talent kind of goes in a certain area, which can't be sure yet is you can spend some time, maybe not closing fives because of the defensive limitations, playing Halliburton, Brogdon, and Duarte all together. Yeah. Yeah, for sure. Because, I mean, Brogdon defensively is somebody who, I mean, they're doing so much switching right now, so some of this is going to be semantics. But, I mean, he's better suited to guarding bigger wings anyways. So you don't really necessarily want him starting out on quicker guards. So then it becomes a question of, I think that they would probably probably look at Duarte more in those settings just based on what I've seen so far this season in other games where sometimes they'll have him pressuring full court and doing some of that and then be more so tapping into, I mean, 
Chris has really good off-ball instincts as well, but more tapping into letting Tyrese do maybe some roaming in some situations where I do think that they probably can play together. And because of what I said before, like they don't have a lot of rim pressure options on this roster as currently constructed, which, I mean, they're not going to run back this exact same roster next year, I wouldn't think. But um, when you look at it, I mean, even from their bigs, aside from Isaiah Jackson as a lob threat and Malcolm Brogdon being able to drive, whether that's second um, second side or as a primary off a pick and roll, um, they just don't have a lot of guys who can get all the way to the basket and draw fouls. So that is one element that he definitely offers that's in short supply with, with the other players they have available. Another element that makes the Pacers potentially, potentially, potentially different from a lot of other teams is this possibility that this is, you brought up the boomerang past, that this is kind of a boomerang redevelopment where the intention is not to be bad for multiple times. Not They're almost definitely with Herb Simon not going as deep as the process and they have too much talent to do that. But the idea that the Pacers are, you know, they're, they're probably going to end up with one of the league's worst records this year and that's totally fine. But Miles Turner is still under contract. Theoretically, they could bring back TJ Warren. We don't I don't know anything about where those where those situations stand. Technically, he's still extension eligible for the rest of this year, but also they will have for full board rights on him should that be what he wants. And so the idea that you are evaluating and developing Halliburton, Duarte, and these things aren't necessarily mutually exclusive. You're developing them, potentially being a part of a better team sooner rather than later. This isn't necessarily going to be a team that is, you know, they're winning so far this year, the Pacers have won 33% of their games, and obviously that's not an even split throughout the year. They might try to be in the playoff hunt next year. And I mean, I'm I'm an optimist with Turner. I'm an optimist with Rick Carlisle as a coach. So the context could shift dramatically. I mean, yeah, that's why it would have been valuable, I think. I mean, you don't want to push guys that have had injuries. You obviously don't want Miles Turner to be dealing with what TJ Warren has been dealing with for the last year. But I do think there would have been some value if he would have been healthy over these back, you know, 20 games after the All-Star break to see him in lineups with some of those guys and how it fits together and what their overall vision is. Because, I mean, they've had so much injury issues. I mean, even with, you know, Goga Batadze being in and out of the lineup with foot soreness now, that Isaiah Jackson's playing most of his minutes at the five, um, particularly offensively, where, you know, if you had Miles back, it would have been nice to know, like, how do the two of them vibe with each other if you do see Isaiah Jackson playing at the four or if you see him long-term at the five. Because, I mean, you look at TJ Warren, if, if, if you want, you know, they just drafted Chris Duarte in the lottery if they do see you know this three guard lineup being something that they want to do moving forward depending also what they do with buddy healed and you have tj warren back at the four spot like he was in the bubble then you're automatically bringing isaiah jackson off the bench behind the two of them which maybe you're fine with i mean i think that isaiah jackson has shown that he still has quite a few areas where he needs to grow so far but um you also have to look at what you think the ceiling with that's going to be because i mean i know that automatically if you have miles turner um, we'll probably get into some of the defensive issues, I'm sure, later. But their defense since since the trade ranks 27th in the league. Oh, boy. And, yeah. yeah. And, and mean, that is that is a deserved 27th from when I've watched oh yeah. them. Oh, yes, for sure. I mean, and, and not that it was good before the trade, but I think that there was probably some sentiment, especially locally, that, you know, 
Sabonis would be, you know, addition by subtraction that him going to Sacramento, that the defense would get fixed. And I've for long thought that while, yes, Miles is clearly an upgrade over Sabonis, guarding at the five spot that he is far from there, uh, that you can just peg their problem and what that end of the floor has been just solely on him. And, you know, they haven't gotten better. It's actually gotten worse since since the trade was made. And I'm not saying that that shouldn't be expected. You're playing a lot of young bigs that still have things to learn, plus the other issues that were already there have continued to exist. And also, like, their transition defense just has a lot of problems too. But um, I think that Miles, when you add him back, obviously right off the bat, one of the number one things they're missing on the defensive end is communication. And he's very good at communicating, calling out, you know, what the coverages are and also giving direction to his teammates and just what he offers if you're in and drop coverage, not just dropping and rim protecting, but also stabbing at the ball and keeping ball handlers off balance is something that they definitely miss without him. But I also know that in December when he was still healthy and playing that for that entire month, this defense was also really, really struggling. And some of that was because opponents were shooting the three at a very high clip and that's noisy and you can't control for that. But I don't think it's probably fair to look and say, you know, because Malcolm Brogdon is back, he's healthy, he's he's driving the ball more than ever with the Pacers that, you know, just adding miles that this team should automatically expect that they can be a playoff team next year. Now, I do think that with a summer to plan for exactly what they want their identity to be on both ends of the floor and knowing what pieces they have, they can be better, but I don't know how much better. And when they did that press conference after acquiring Tyrese, you know, they had said in the past, like, we, we can be a tough out and there had been a lot of uh, local pushback to that and Kevin Pritchard had kind of mentioned like you know I've heard those criticisms we don't want to be a tough out we want to compete we want to get back to being a contender if that's the goal I do kind of question if maybe you do need to take more steps back and get back into the window with Tyrese and get more bites at the apple there rather than try to balance both things but I mean there is the example right now of Toronto you know they did dip for one year kind of the one year tank got Scotty Barnes and now they're back to being competitive again so there is the model out there outstanding for how you can do that there is and some of that will be indicated again i brought up the idea with malcolm brogdon of what else is out there what are the offers that are in play and what is your priority you know i think of like competitiveness level as an ownership decision rather than a general manager though those two interplay a lot you know you can you sell the owner on your vision and everything else and also it wouldn't surprise me if Rick Carlisle was a voice in the room pushing for them to be more competitive in the in the nearer term. That's generally what something that he has liked at other points in time. And the other key component of this, and this comes up a lot, like one of the joys of covering all 30 teams is that you see franchises at different phases at all times, is the idea of when when a team is considering a rebuild, one of the most important questions is, can you tear it down? And if so, what would that look like? Because there are certain circumstances where maybe your players are too good or something else where you can't, where it's like, okay, you're, maybe you'll sell off a couple things, but you're not going to be better. You're not going to be worse than like the 10th worst team in the league. And I don't know. I, I think the Pacers, theoretically, you know, if you traded away Turner and Warren left and Broughton, they could probably be pretty bad if that if that if they were comfortable with that for a year or two. But my inclination is that that's not what they want. And we could find out very differently, very quickly, and, you know, whatever they want to do in that range. But 
I think the allure of being relevant is is going to be hard for them to pass up. Yeah, I mean, there's been interviews. I know that I believe Tyrese was on NBA Today and mentioned the word soft rebuild and that they want to be able to get back to, you know, being competitive. So I would agree that's probably what stance they want to take. I mean, even early on in the season when the initial reporting had come out from The Athletic about the possibility of basically shopping Miles and Sabonis and Levert, um, the Pacers were playing the Heat on TNT, and Jared Greenberg had a sideline report where he said that he had asked Rick Carlisle, you know, if if you knew that a team would be going through a rebuild in the first year as a head coach, would you would you have wanted to go there? And he or and he said no. So um, according to what that report was, so I think that yeah, you're probably correct that they're probably going to want to be as competitive as possible. It's just you know. A question of how exactly competitive that's going to be if you're saying that your stated goal is that you want to get back to you know being a contender status i don't know that i'm going to be bouncing them up into the upper echelons unless there's pretty considerable change in the eastern conference over the summer absolutely and thresholds are essential to this too you brought up being a top tier contender and those teams are very good and also should be so for at least another couple of years. You know, the Heat, the Bucks, the Sixers, the Celtics, and then we've seen some of the rising teams like the Bulls and you brought up the Raptors with their short-term thing. Like it is a harder ceiling to crack now than it has been in a little while. There's some some talent I guess that'd be like condens not not condensations, but some some like accumulation of talent at the high end of this. And also some of those teams being better run. And I mean you could also see like the Pacers, who might want to try to get back in the mix. You can see other teams that have had down years get back in there. And so the evaluation will be will be very important. But at the same point, with somebody like Tyrese Halliburton, somebody like Chris Duarte in particular, and, and Isaiah Jackson, I think, is in some ways even more obvious on this, developing them isn't actually that different. Giving them the tools to become better players, you know, providing the organizational support, and of course their own internal motivation and development it does change what you're expected to do and maybe a little bit about the arc, but generally speaking, they're going to want to work on the same stuff. And you did a really good piece on Indy Cornrows about some of the some of the different nuances that they could get into in terms of like ways to improve. You brought up like Duarte's footwork and how he drives and for Halliburton with the boomerang passes. And generally speaking, you want to get better overall as players and you see where where that takes you rather than trying to focus on a specific role and working on that. Yeah, I think so. I mean, the big thing with Tyrese is I think that you can notice about every game, like his usage has upticked a little bit since he came over from Sacramento. He's taken a couple more shots per game. Um, His minutes are, are also up, so that's part of it. But I think that you can you can pinpoint a few spots almost every game where you feel that he's being too deferential, which was the point that I was getting into in that article where um, you kind of want him to realize, like, I am Tyrese Halliburton. And it's not that you have to, like, ooh, mismatch, hunt that, hunt that, hunt that. But, you know, if he has, you know, Steven Adams in a drop like they did against Memphis the other night and Tyus Jones is trailing him. A lot of times he he tends that he wants to to pick up and abort his dribble before he even gets into the paint and wants to go into a jump pass. And a lot of ways that works for him because his eye manipulation is so good that he can be up in the air and use a jump pass and look one way and still convert that pass. And because of what I said before, that he can keep defenders off balance because he is so effective with the floater. He can throw the skip pass to the opposite corner or he 
can throw the law. But the problem becomes that sometimes he doesn't always force that defense to commit where you want him. Like I said, you want him to get deeper off the ball screen so that the big actually steps up and commits to him. So that's more open because over the last eight games, he's had four more turnovers in each of them. His turnover percentage, I believe, is over 20 percent with the Pacers right now, which, you know, again, it's only his second year. But um, it becomes a thing that if they see him as this franchise level player, can he take on more? And it's not me necessarily saying that he has to be, you know, a heliocentric point guard like what you've seen with Luca or Trey Young and other settings because of how unique his passing ability is, but you do want him to be more aggressive looking for his own shots in certain spots and be able to develop and grow, like I said, whenever he sees some of these lengthier defenders switch out to him, because it's not even just bigs. Like There was a possession in Detroit where I think that they probably had a case that he got fouled, but there was about six minutes left in the game, and Killian Hayes switched out against him, and he had trouble getting traction into the lane there. And he was somewhat being shaded left, but I don't think that was the only problem. And then from that point forward... um, Um, They got a turnover there. Marvin Bagley scored at the other end really quick on a fast break situation. And then they ended up running the offense more through Malcolm Brogdon. So, um, yeah, I mean, I don't necessarily think that the pieces that the other pieces that they have will prevent some of the stuff that they want to see from any of those guys necessarily. Um, because like, like you're saying, if, if Miles Turner is still on the roster, you can either use Isaiah Jackson as your backup five and continue grooming him at the five spot, or you could play them together, though I would be kind of surprised by that, given that while I do think that Rick Carlisle definitely tried to make Miles and Sabonis work, I never really thought there was a lot of enthusiasm for that and how it was going to fit the way that he would prefer to play. So I would be a little bit surprised if they went back to playing both of them together. Plenty more with Caitlin Cooper, but first a message from betonline.ag. It's that time of year as college basketball takes center stage. The tournament is finally upon us. Looking to wager this year? BetOnline is the number one spot for all your updated odds and information, along with great contests, including the bracket contest where you have a chance to take home the top prize. Head over to the website or use your mobile device to sign up today and receive your 50% welcome bonus on your first deposit. Just use our promo code CLNS50 to get started. You can remember the 5-0 because you get a 50% welcome bonus. BetOnline is your continued source for all your sports wagering needs, including live betting and your favorite Vegas casino games. The fastest and easiest way to wager on all the popular sports and games. BetOnline, where the game starts. There are also developments for Tyrese Albert, and I loved in the piece that you brought up the juxtaposition of him and Lance Stevenson, who doesn't defer <laughs> as much as Tyrese Halbert does, and you want Tyrese Halbert to kind of think a little bit in that way. But also developments like in terms of your handle and some of that judgment stuff that even if you don't have the ball in your hands as much in the eventual version of the Pacers, whether that's because it's Duarte or Brogdon or somebody who is not yet on the team— a lot of those skills end up transferring, and I, I brought this up that guys who have a lot of who, who develop ball skills early in their career, one of the things that they become much better at later on is attacking closeouts with that same toolbox because you get a little bit of an advantage, and if you want to go to the extreme with the Utah Jazz, well, if you use if you have an advantage, you have a half step on, on somebody else because they're recovering to you, then you can use a more confident handle. You can get downhill a little bit, create an advantage, and as you said with Halliburton, Getting the defender to commit, that's the, in many ways, when you're creating, that's the first goal. The first, I mean, the first goal is to create separation, but then you can say the ancillary first goal is to force a reaction because until you force a reaction, the advantage is much more fleeting and, and harder to maximize. But once you draw help, then you're creating an easier look for someone else. 
Exactly, because I mean, there's. I think that I had in there. I'm trying to remember what possession I included, but they were down in Orlando and they run wide a lot. So, like for people who don't know, that's just a middle ball screen that's away for the off ball guard. So, Buddy Heald had the the ball on one side of the floor, and I think it was Jalen Smith sets the away screen for Tyrese to catch the ball downhill. Wendell Carter Jr.'s in a drop, and he gets like two dribbles, and though he has more space that he could go and formally at least meet him or go into his floater, he sees two dribbles sees that he's there and just backs it out to Buddy Heald to do something. Or like when they're playing Memphis, Jaron Jackson Jr. switches on to him on the ball. He immediately passes it to Buddy Heald on the slot, which to Buddy's credit, like his rim frequency is up fairly significantly from when he was with Sacramento and his assist percentage currently is the highest it's ever been in his career. So, you know, he drove into that open space from the slot, drove and kick. And then I think Dwayne Washington got a three. So like when you look at those particular spots, it's not necessarily a bad thing that, you know, I'm sure that players want to play with Tyrese Halliburton. I mean, it's kind of like when you look at sort of what John Morant's ascension has been with Memphis. Like he hasn't necessarily been, even though his scoring has certainly gone up, he's not necessarily a guy who has to, you know, dominate every possession and be being the person who has to pass the ball to the person who's going to make a shot. So I'm guessing that teammates like to play with guys like that. It's just finding the balance between playmaking and scoring, I think, is is Tyrese's big hurdle over the summer, along with just getting stronger in general in ways that I think would benefit him on both ends of the floor. What would be a similar priority for Duarte at this juncture? Yeah, I mean, that's what's interesting is I, I brought up the jump passing with Duarte yeah, in there. You did. Because, I mean, they both, they both have that as somewhat of an issue. It's just that you can kind of plug your nose with it more with Tyrese because of what I said. He has such good feel and functionality as a passer and a playmaker and how um, accurate he can be with passes that Duarte doesn't quite have yet. So whereas Tyrese might be, you know, looking at the opposite corner and he's really going to throw a lob to Isaiah Jackson, um, Duarte is going to stare down the skip pass the whole way there and his defender is going to be able to read that. And when he gets all the way into the rim, sometimes you'll see, and it's not always going to be a turnover. Sometimes it's going to be a missed shot. Sometimes it's going to be a deflection and they'll maintain possession, but he struggles to make late adjustments once he gets the defense to commit to him. So it's kind of the reverse situation where, you know, now I need to adjust my body to these defenders being here and I don't, I'm up in the air and I don't have the same zip on the ball because you're naturally not going to have that when you're on the air versus the ground. So um, like you said, getting the footwork, I think that, you know, it's, you know, a high school thing. Don't leave your feet, but, you know, getting a jump stop and the, and the spots where you see him do that and he decelerates and gets his defender on his back, those decisions become clearer for him. And I think that that will add, like, especially if they see those two as their future backcourt, that will add in their ability to be more interchangeable and have Tyrese also spacing off the ball, which is another thing I should have brought up because there are certain spots where when Tyrese is off the ball, which the Pacers turnover rate is, is not good. And that's in part leading to why their transition defense has kind of fallen off a cliff. I think they're 29th in transition defense since the trade and their turnover rates in the bottom five too, that, you know, Tyrese might be, you know, standing at the 45 degree angle, buddy drives baseline. Naturally the best time to cut in those situations or the best place to cut is going to be from the wing to the basket. Right. Tyrese kind of stands and not even standing in between the two weak side defenders kind of behind a defender, buddy throws the pass, it gets deflected. And then buddy's then litigating that with Tyrese 
Reese in transition instead of the two of them getting back. So you can see spots like that where it's a double-edged sword. It's not only just that the turnovers are complicating their transition problems, but then they're using, you know, making unnecessary decisions or taking unnecessary movements in transition. And, you know, I think that that is, has led to some of the turnover issues where just, you know, him growing too and his ability to recognize where he can move off ball to make himself open with as good of a shooter as he is um, would open things up even a little bit more if they're going to have three guard lineups where other people are going to be handling or they're going to be mixing and matching those combinations. But um, Duarte's back to him. Like I wrote in there, like it's about, he can dribble pass and shoot. Like there's been times where in secondary actions, he comes off of staggers. He has a very good change of speed. He can make wraparound passes to the bigs in those situations. It's just that he doesn't always make the correct decision of when he should pass, when he should shoot and when he should drive. And then, I mean, that was very prevalent early in the season where a lot of teams were, were blitzing him and Brogdon and Levert more. And, and he can shoot against the hedge. He can tear that coverage apart, but some, Sometimes he'll stay on ball too long and then it becomes a turnover when, you know, when Sabonis was still there, he could have got the ball to him quicker and then they can get to the next player, the next action. So I think sometimes a lot of times it's that with him because his pass accuracy just isn't as good. Sometimes he's going to throw it a little bit outside a guy's shooting pocket or above their head. So then you're having to regather it and then sometimes it becomes an extra pass. Let's shift at least for a bit to the big, the bigs, the Pacers still have I mean, let's let's not even count Jalen Smith for the second. Let's go start with Jackson and Batadze. This is Jackson's rookie year and Batadze's third year. If you're kind of gaming out, not necessarily where they are now, but looking at it moving forward, I mean, you have different thresholds, but one of them is like, do you like future starter versus future reserve, reserve versus maybe less than that. How are you feeling about Jackson and Batadze as they move forward? I mean, if I'm just gauging how the Pacers are looking at it, it seems pretty clear that they view Isaiah ahead of Goga, or at least that's what their current priorities are because Isaiah Jackson's been in the starting lineup. It seems to have, you know, he has the foul trouble. He's averaging over six fouls per 36 minutes. I mean, that's been a little bit better the last couple games, but he also seems to me that he has a little bit more leeway to play through mistakes. And in part that is because he's a rookie. I mean, it's a good example to bring up that they're playing um, the Cavs about a week ago and they get into the fourth quarter. And this is something that shows up a lot with Goga because um, all season long, it's felt like they've never really had a defensive identity that they fully developed. And I think in part, there's a lot of NBA teams that are, are mixing in a wider variety of coverages. I don't think that's necessarily abnormal, but you know, they entered the season with, with Turner and Sabonis both on the roster. And last year, based on what Nate Bjorken did, it was very clear you can't treat those two the same defensively. You can't be running this, you know, hyper-aggressive scheme where you're funneling that much action to the rim with Sabonis. It has to be different. And to this coach's staff's credit, they did that. Like it was a lot more hedging with Sabonis where he was out above the level. And to Sabonis's credit, I think that he did grow in his technique in that setting um, where that was feasible. There were games where he was good at it and he could deter action from the rim that way. It's just a matter that they didn't always have the right background rotations. That wasn't necessarily on him. But point being is they're balancing both of those schemes and it feels like every big on their roster like independent of who the opponent is needs to run a different pick and roll coverage ideally and they're yeah, also playing that's amazing some, yeah they also, right. they also need to be playing some zone so they've never seemed settled in anything that they're doing so then complicating matters is, is it seems pretty clear to me that Goga needs to be a lot better at communicating from the back line so they come out in this Cavs game with about 10 minutes to go and um, Evan Mobley sets 
a wing pick and roll for Darius Garland and Brogdon switches on to there because when they're playing with Isaiah Jackson and Jalen Smith, they're pretty much switching everything with a minus a few exceptions. So he's already automatically on the roller and then Goga starts to back up in a drop and then Darius Garland's just wide open from three. So you see these moments where they're simultaneously executing incongruent coverages and then Brogdon looks at Goga like, you know, what are you doing? So it becomes a case with Batadze moving forward where it's like he's either going to need to assimilate to, you know, we are a switching team and be able to do that. Or if they're going to continue to balance multiple types of defense, he needs to get a lot better at letting, you know, the guard, the on-ball defender know, you know, drop left, drop right. This is what we're doing because it's evident that Brogdon had no clue that he was going to drop back. And that's not just an isolated occurrence. That's happened several times where then for the rest of the game, he didn't play. So that's what I'm getting <laughs> with the stakes like that was it and I think in part it was because they were making an adjustment being like hey we're, we're going to start switching at Darius Garland which as it turns out they stuck with way too long because he was completely dissecting oh he was torching that yeah until they finally are like okay we need to make another adjustment and now we're hard trapping um but Goga I I I very much struggled to discern whether they're doing this much switching because they're like, hey, we have young guys and this is what we see with Isaiah Jackson and his fluidity and his ability to move on the perimeter and so much with Jalen or if it's like they're just trying to somewhat get to the finish line. And I don't want to make it sound like they're phoning it in, but just, you know, there's 11 games left. This is the best way to make, you know, this work for the rest of the season. Then when we get into the summer, we're going to game plan for what exactly we want to be because I, I, to this moment don't know what they really want to take away at that end of the floor what are they willing to give up what types of shots are they trying to limit um i I don't fully understand that and then if you look at miles turner um last summer around the draft it sounded like they were very much looking for guys that they wanted to have a switchable team where they could do what they are doing just not very well right now and if if that's miles turner i would then question you know he can do some switching against wings i think it gets dicier than what most people think against guards but if he's switching out to the perimeter then that's kind of taking away the best thing that he does which is his rim protection and everything he offers you around the basket even just deterring shots from even happening so um i need to know more of that vision but just between i isaiah jackson and goga based on what i'm seeing i i think that isaiah jackson is ahead in the pecking order for what they think there and i kind of question if goga will be somewhat in the long-term plans even though they've already opted into the last year of his rookie deal they have opted in and that creates some logistical challenges Batatze will make 4.8 million next year and you know the pacers depending on which route they take they could end up wanting cap space but you could potentially find a team interested in in rolling those dice especially there are a bunch of trade exceptions floating out there something else should the pacers go that direction and I'm, i'm really sympathetic to the point that you made and this happens all the time with people whether they're connected to a team or not evaluating what they are doing and when there are multiple potential contexts and the scheme is such an important example of that because They might be doing it because when you're playing out the string or just you have young players and you don't have the time, teams practice very little over the course of the last final kick of a regular season, that switching, if you're doing it pretty standard, it's very easy to teach and very easy to understand. You know, okay, if there's an action here, you switch. There are some things in terms of mesh points and if there's contact on the screen and everything else, that can be a little bit thorny. But comparing that to the nuances of a drop coverage or of a hedge and recover or something else, especially if some of the players involved are players that might not be on the team long term, that you might just do it as shorthand. But it also could be that that is, as you mentioned, the vision for the team long term. And from where we are, unless 
somebody is privy to other information, and I'm definitely not, and I don't think you are as well. It could also just be what they want to do. And it is okay to wonder that and to ex- to express the possibilities of both things and say, we don't know. Because the simple answer, at least for me, is I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I mean, it's it's definitely tough to tell. I mean, because part of the problem is too that you're talking about the nuances of switching. I mean, I think I bring it up on our podcast almost once a week. Like when Trey Young, Trey Young had over 30 points at halftime against them in Atlanta, and they were predominantly switching. And I think, like, I mean, I've said it. They their point of attack defense isn't great. They don't have a clear cut option there because of what Brogdon's issues are against lightning quick guards and Tyrese and Duarte both have strengths as defenders, but it's more so with their anticipation and ability to read passing lanes than it is what they do on ball right. um, to this current moment. They're both young. I think they both need to get stronger in those regards, but um, almost every time when they're playing against a guard, that's a pull-up threat like that, you can about count that they're going to go off because the, that guard's defender disconnects so early. And then the screeners defender will not be at the point of the screen to make that handing over, you know, clear. So then you're just giving Trey Young space to stop and pop in between that switch. And it happened like, I mean, when they gave up, I think whatever it was almost, you know, close to 150 points to Charlotte and just got absolutely eviscerated. That's what you're seeing in that game too. And it doesn't always seem like there's a lot of nuance as well as are we switching on top of the roller or are we switching beneath? And of course that's going to change from game to game based on who the threat is. But like in that game, they would switch on top of PJ Washington and Miles Bridges. And then that slips there. And that seems like the opposite of what I would scheme for when you know that LaMelo Ball is as good as LaMelo Ball is at throwing lobs up over the top. And then sometimes, you know, it might be Nikola Vucevic and they're going to switch underneath and it's like, okay, well, you don't have any centers with strength to push back on him in a post-up situation where it would be better for you then to switch that on top and force them to throw lobs, especially because they haven't had Lonzo in the games that, you know, the Pacers have played them in. So it's little things like that where it feels, like I said, it feels a little bit underbaked and that this is just something that we're trying to band-aid and make it through to the end versus like, this is something that's really been well and into their defense. When you make a midseason trade like this and you're completely altering what you're doing, because through the middle portion of the season, Miles Turner was even jumping out above the level of screens. That's where they had gotten to with the point of attack defense that they were, you know, if they played the Brooklyn Nets and they were playing a good playmaking point guard who can also pull up off the dribble, and in their case, multiples, they were hedging. And now after the trade deadline, that completely changes. So you're not having a lot of time to teach and implement a whole different scheme. But um, it hasn't been good. The defense surely is a problem and it's I mean they started out this season on media day and said that their two goals for the season were fixing the defense and togetherness and I'm not really sure they can say that they've achieved either one of those two particular goals it looked at the time and I think Jake Fisher had reporting of this that they acquired Jalen Smith and Parchus because they're getting off of Tory Craig's guaranteed money for next year but then and that they were thinking about flipping him to a to another team and it ended up being that he stuck around with the Pacers. What has been your evaluation of Smith? And do you think he's somebody that, you know, given that he's going into unrestricted free agency, that they should consider keeping around? Right. And you're the perfect person to talk about this, because I think this is like the number one talking point on Pacer Twitter is whether they can retain Jalen Smith since, you know, Phoenix already declined his his third year option and that the Pacers are limited in what they can offer him. I mean, in the first in February, when he first came over with the Pacers, you know, that was I'm looking at how many games it is. He shot 41 percent from three. He was 14 to 34, obviously very low volume volume, but 
he's making threes in a, in a wider variety of ways. It's not just him standing in the corner and just hitting a spot up three. I've seen him, you know, when they were in Orlando, he actually stepped into some threes as a trailer. They're using him more in pick and pop settings, whether that's in double drag or just him coming and setting a high ball screen and popping where he's made some. Now in March, that's fallen back to more of its normal level where he's been down in 29%. And the thing is with Jalen is typically when it, when the games have been close, he's the big that Rick Carlisle has turned to um, when they were playing the Cavs and Darius Garland was going off like that. And I think both, like we both agreed, they should have gone away from the switching earlier. He was the big that was out there. And then when they went to the hard trapping, they kept him out there. Um, so that creates, you know, somewhat of an interesting dynamic because if you can't retain him, he's getting a lot of key minutes in situations where, you know, Goga and Isaiah Jackson are already rostered and are going to be on the roster unless they find some other type of trade. So um, when Jalen hits the three, it opens up a lot. Like, I don't think that defenders necessarily believe in his ability to make the three, which is where I think some of the cutting that the coaching staff designs with him makes a difference in putting tension on various defenders. But I think his main thing is, is if he is going to be playing because the Pacers are using him more at the four than necessarily even at the five. Sometimes he's out there with Isaiah Jackson or with Goga or with Terry Taylor, where Terry Taylor's offering more as the role man, that he's going to need to get better as decision-making sometimes on whether he should back down somebody or whether he should face up and take them off the dribble. Because he has okay touch when he drives a closeout on the baseline where he can have, you know, a nice little floater. But then there's other moments, like the other night when they played Memphis, where, you know, Memphis is doing that switching with Jaron Jackson at the five. He gets Kyle Anderson on a switch, and it's kind of like watching, you know, tires try to gain traction in the snow. He'll use a couple power dribbles and he can't really move the guy and then he'll turn and, and kind of look like well maybe I can get to my face up jump shot and then it's like no I can't get to either one and then he'll pass out I've seen that happen against Peyton Pritchard when the Celtics were switching um, against Corey Joseph when the Pistons were switching um, sometimes he can do a little bit more if he gets a very deep catch right by the basket but um, just the in-between game I mean I know I, I've used this quote before but Monty Williams had a quote before they traded him where Jalen had filled in when JaVale McGee and DeAndre Ayton were out with COVID where he had said, you know, when he got drafted, I think the eval was of him was that, you know, he would be this like Jeremy Grant type and he's not that he's a five. And I think in some respects, I agree there that he probably does track out better than a five. And that's where his shooting's going to probably be of a little bit more use because of what some of his other limitations are. But then, you know, when the Pacers have been using him and switch everything schemes, he can't do it. And to the comparison of like him to Goga operating in the incongruent scheme, I guess if I have to choose, I would rather watch somebody get beat on the switch than not be communicating and even executing what the intended coverage is. But um, they already have Isaiah Jackson at that position. But yeah, I mean, I, I would love to know for you, and I'm sure that people will listen to this because I'm on it. Um, what are you seeing his market like? Do you think it's even realistic that the Pacers will be able to retain him? I do think it's realistic that they'll be able to retain him. Just as the with the logistical CPA nerd part of this, um, I think back of the best example is Austin Rivers of, of how this works. So basically, what happens is they the owner the owners and players when they negotiated the collective bargaining agreement when they have these series of option decisions they didn't want a loophole where a team could decline a rookie scale option as a way to give for the player to make more money incidentally you do have that you could theoretically have that in a second year a, a, a second round contract like Jokic technically they declined a uh, they declined an option to give him more money but that was because they thought he would leave as an unrestricted free agent anyway not part not part of this so the way that works is 
if you decline an option, whether it's a third or a fourth year option for a player, the team in question, which transferred from the Suns to the Pacers in this trade, just like in the Austin Rivers case, it went from the Pelicans to the Clippers. You cannot in that first year, that team and that that team cannot pay the player more than the value of the declined option, which is $4.7 million in this case. My inclination is that there isn't a team falling all over themselves to give Jalen Smith significantly more than that. Could it be that a team with the taxpayer mid-level, which is roughly that same range, I think it's technically like 5.9, that they would be interested? Possibly. But there aren't going to be that many teams using the full taxpayer mid-level. There aren't even going to be that many teams necessarily using the full non-taxpayer mid-level. And the other key question for Jalen Smith, and this ties in with somebody like Furkan Korkmaz, who also had a declined option and returned to his team. In that case, it was the team that declined the option, is what is that team offering you in terms of a role and an opportunity? Because a lot of times the way this can work is, technically speaking, that team, the team, whether they decline the option or they have your rights, they actually technically also have full bird rights. And so what that means is, if you sign a one-year deal, or it could be a one-year deal with a player option in the second year, or however you want to handle it like that, technically speaking, then, if they fulfill that contract, then they have full rights and can sign you to anything they want. Whereas a new team, you would basically use that. You could They have any starting point, but you have to work within that. So theoretically, if Jalen Smith signs a one-year deal with Pacers, explodes and is a starter, then they could pay him starter money right away. Now, does he think he's going to get the opportunity to play enough with the Pacers to earn that sort of a contract? Hard to know. Is he going to... Are, are they going to even say to him... Like, we're, you're definitely our backup four, backup five. You brought up the positional stuff with him. If they're keeping Miles Turner, that's probably harder to retain Jalen Smith because Jackson is clearly ahead of him in the pecking order. And they, you know, they committed to Jackson. It wasn't an afterthought or anything like that. So the question of can they is yes. I actually think that Smith's market is not going to be super robust. He did have that progress, uh, that that impressive stretch with the Suns, and he hasn't. He's certainly he's been hitting shots with the Pacers, but it's even in this. This is not restricted free agency. I, I often talk about how restricted free agency is all about falling in love. Unrestricted is a little bit different, but when there are so few teams that have cap space, it isn't really that different. So I would say the Pacers can retain Smith. However, it's likely not about the money in that case. It's about the opportunity because the money they can offer will probably be in the same ballpark. And if I'm Jalen Smith or if I if Jalen Smith was asking for my advice, I would be choosing a destination based on where I can play, where I can show what I can do. Right. And, and that will depend, too, on how. I mean, I think that's why... From game to game, you never know exactly what the front court rotation is going to be and exactly which one of those bigs is going to play with who. And I think a lot of that goes down to wanting to see guys against different matchups and in different roles. So, you know, they've played him. They've played him enough at the four. I mean, they could have, you know, O'Shea is also playing well at the four. They offer very different things. But, you know, if, if TJ Warren isn't there, even if Miles is and you're playing Isaiah Jackson at backup five or they're playing Isaiah Jackson at the four, I think that there could still be opportunity for Jalen there just because it seems pretty clear to me that just from a coaching value standpoint that Rick Carlisle has more trust at this current moment in putting Jalen Smith out on the court than what he does with Goga. But that's just my outsider's perspective because, I mean, when they played the Wizards, Goga had, you know, a career high scoring game. I forget how many points he had at halftime and he came out and it was the third quarter and he didn't play until there was, you know, a minute to go in the third quarter. And it wasn't because for defensive reasons, because they gave up 35 plus points in that quarter. So um, I think that he likes what Jalen's 
overall game and fits a little bit better what they're doing. So if monetarily it's possible for them to retain him, I wouldn't be surprised if that does in fact happen just because I think that there still could be minutes available for him if they if they see him as, you know, continuing to be able to function at the four. Because it's somewhat interesting when they play opponents, how opponents view when he and Isaiah Jackson are on the floor at the same time. Because like when they played Cleveland, if Jalen's coming outside of an exit screen, like Jared Allen was guarding Jalen, not Isaiah Jackson, even though Isaiah Jackson's going to be the one of the two of them that's more involved in the screening action and is going to be involved around the basket and likewise when they played Boston you know Boston's going to assign Robert Williams to the lower usage player typically and they put him on Isaiah Jackson even though Isaiah was going to be the person that was going to be involved in the screening so a lot of times it seems like whether you know Jalen offensively is functioning more at the four um, he still draws five man um, on defense so and then at the other end he's typically guarding out on the perimeter and they keep Jalen on the five so um, that's something to watch as the season goes on but if, if they can keep him I won't be surprised if they if they go ahead and, and try to the last thing i wanted to ask you about you've written about you do such a great job on kind of on, on the lower end of the rotation as well this stretch has given the pacers an opportunity to evaluate guys like terry taylor and we mentioned jalen smith and Dwayne washington and o'shea Brissett. are there any of those players as you've been watching the pacers that when you that you see as like oh yeah that's a rotation player moving forward especially on a better version of the pacers like is there anybody that you're you're like okay i see how this works yeah i mean i think i can still see o'shea Brissett as a backup for um just because simply i mean i've used this comparison and it isn't perfect but i see him having similar positive qualities to robert covington especially as a defender like he's not somebody that you're necessarily going to trust a ton on you know perimeter to, to be a stopper in that way or even in the post but what he does with his instincts as a backline defender moving sideline to sideline and whether he should help and whether he should stay home and sliding over to take charges isn't really something else they have on the roster he's also extremely resourceful where if you do get into a matchup like against Boston and he's going to have, you know, a Robert Williams roaming off of him, there are games where he can, you know, step up and he might hit six threes. Is that going to happen every game? No, but he knows how to slide up on the baseline and find those angles. And he's also, like I said, a very resourceful cutter. He's going to find cracks. He's going to move. He's going to be the energy that finds the ball on both ends of the floor in good ways. Um, He still has some limitations as a finisher and putting the ball on the court. Um, Like I said, his strength his core strength could improve especially when he's defending up a position against bigger guys I think ideally he plays offensively the four because in the games where he's played at the three I think he struggled a little bit more um, with his drives to get past his defender versus at the four but um, just everything he brings that doesn't always show up in the box score and that's a cliche but there's a lot of energy plays winning plays that he makes that don't always show up um Terry Taylor, to his credit, I mean, for the Pacers hitting on the fringes with two-way deals, they've, they've gotten a lot. And somewhat, somewhat of it's just them getting a lot more opportunity than they probably would have on another team based on what the season has been for the Pacers. But for Terry Taylor being six foot five and somebody who's been as effective as he is as a role man and what he does, probably better than anybody else on the roster in terms of slipping out of picks to punish switches. He has great timing for that. And then just what he's been as an offensive rebounder. But um, I think O'Shea probably offers a little bit more versatility because of the way that in certain games he can heat up as a shooter and do a little bit more in that way. But I mean, I think that there's reason to continue to get looks at both of them, given what the current state of the team is. For sure. And I've been extremely encouraged by both 
Brissett and Taylor, and we can see where where things go moving forward. Anything else on the Pacers or broader that you would like to discuss? No, I think that you hit everything really well. Hopefully people got a lot out of this, especially your insights on Jalen Smith's contract situation and how often I get asked questions about that. And now you can defer them to that. Uh, Maybe I should write on it at some point. Um, But thank you so much for taking time. Absolute pleasure. Yep, no problem. Thanks for having me. Thanks again to Caitlin Cooper for taking the time to come on. You can read her excellent work at Indie Cornrows. That is SB Nation's Pacers blog. It's IndieCornrows.com. And of course, you can follow her on Twitter at C2 underscore Cooper. That is the letter C, the number two underscore C-O-O-P-E-R. Love having her on. Think she is a phenomenal analyst, and I highly encourage you to follow her. And I love when she talks about other teams and other players as well, but of course the Pacers too, and that's why we did a whole podcast on it. So check that out. If you want to support Real GM Radio, there are a lot of different ways you can do it. You can subscribe, download every episode. That really helps for this show because the episodes are always going to come out differently depending on my availability and guest availability, whatever podcast player you choose. You can do that. You can also leave a rating and a review. That really helps us as well. Word of mouth too. So hey, you like this podcast or you like the show in general. That helps us find new listeners and really do appreciate that. Of course, the biggest thing you can do for this show and any other that has them is to check out our sponsors for us. That is bet online, and you can use that CLNS50 code to not only tell them that you came from us, but to get a 50% welcome bonus. So something good for both of us there. If you haven't already, you can listen to the Mascot Bracket podcast that I put out with my sister. That is her using her biology training to pick which mascot in the NCAA tournament would win in a fight. It's a lot of fun. It That came out yesterday, and it's, it's a delight. I really, truly enjoy doing it, and it exists kind of outside of this in the sense that that's why I release another episode this week and everything else but i hope you really enjoy it you can also check out my other work nate duncan and i are going strong with dunked on and dunked on prime subscribers get five episodes a week and non-subscribers get at least one public episode i can't remember the exact structure right now and we're also doing weekly conversations i like to think of it as an internet call-in radio show on spotify green room that will be continuing as well and we're doing the nba strategy stream on league pass that is on mondays we're doing an awesome heat sixers game this upcoming monday my written work is at the athletic and of course this podcast and so if you have any feedback good bad or indifferent danny larue nba at gmail.com is the way to get to me if you take the time to write it i will take the time to read it that is a promise i'll reply if i can but i am not admittedly the greatest at that lots of basketball to watch right now in particular but i truly love what i do and i appreciate all of you making it possible for me to do it so thank you so much for listening take care and make it a great day Mm -hmm.